Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. Uh, Today, I want to start out by reminding you that uh, if you're starting to get really interested in this this whole cryptocurrency thing, you know, this distributed ledger technology and such, make sure to uh, visit the website consensusnetwork.io. And there's lots of tutorials there um, that Phil, uh, my uh, producer, uh, has uh, put together. He's done a good job on those, and it's sort of easy to get in. Still a good time to get in. Uh, we've got, you know, Bitcoin uh, as of this morning, I think it was trading around 6500 bucks. Not a bad time. Uh, still, if you've owned nothing, um, I would uh, seriously consider it. Obviously, we'll have the news to talk about those issues some more. But if you listen to last week's news and the week before that, you'll understand why. I think that that's the case. Also, for those of you who are... Um, you know, Bitcoin rich, Uh, consider going to my other podcast, Wealth Formula podcast, where we really are speaking to people who actually have money and what to do with it. Um, And it's not just about investing, but it's also about tax mitigation, you know, lowering your taxes. I've got some really good ideas on the Bitcoin front, by the way. And also on, um, you know, uh, things that people with a lot of money need to worry about, like asset protection, estate planning, etc. Again, that is Wealth Formula Podcast. It's been around for a while. It's a great podcast for people who are just interested in learning about non-traditional investing. We're really sort of a non-Wall Street show. I'm not a Wall Street guy, folks. So anyway, um, as for this week, um, you know, I... um, I think this is an interesting show. You know, on the news, and the last uh, news that we had last week, I told you about how Yale University had decided to get into the whole crypto market through its endowment. And, uh, of course, you know, that's that's a big deal, right? I mean, you've got Yale's second oldest university in the, in the United States after Harvard, and it is in uh, investing some of that endowment money into cryptocurrency. By the way, they're one of the most successful endowments um, out there in terms of percentage returns year over year. And so it's just another sign of the inevitability of this technological phenomena. Uh, Don't listen to Nouriel Roubini, uh, who has predicted everything wrong, uh, specifically on cryptocurrency for the last decade consistently. Um, Now, the major universities have accepted this Um, you know, we know that Wall Street has already looked at Bitcoin, at least as a legitimate storage of value. Now, let's go back to the university thing. Again, this is kind of a big deal, right? Because, you know, what do universities do? They're not, they're not Wall Street. They're trying to teach things that they think are the future. And of course, um, they want to make sure that their students are prepared for things that, uh, that are coming up, right? Technologically, et cetera. Um, well, sure enough, because of that, you're seeing more and more of these blockchain distributed ledger courses popping up in the universities left and right. You can also see online, I think MIT has something now. Um, anyway, lots of major universities are trying to, you know, take advantage of this 
new revolution and and not only you know not only teach people but on the online side understanding that people want to learn about it they can make some money doing it too um now that doesn't mean they know what they're talking about necessarily because I've listened to some of these folks and and they say some things that are a little unusual for anybody who knows a little bit about blockchain distributed ledger technology but one thing's for sure I think they're really trying um, now the University of California Berkeley uh, in particular a fine institution in the Bay Area which is also helpful because so much fintech is going on over there. Uh, they've been on the cutting edge of, of many new technological and social movements. Um, so in that regard, it's not regard it's not too surprising that our guest on today's show, Greg LeBlanc, is one of the instructors on a brand new uh, course uh, that introduces Berkeley students uh, to blockchain. Uh, Greg is a, is a really, really smart guy, and he takes us from a unique perspective because he's also a financial historian. So when we come back, you're going to hear uh, from Greg LeBlanc, um, Professor Greg LeBlanc, not only on uh, his thoughts on Bitcoin and blockchain and all these things, but also how it fits into the big picture historically. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Greg LeBlanc. Now, Greg is a lecturer and Distinguished Teaching Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and also serves as the director of the Bolt Hall School of Law's FinTech Center. Greg's research and interest include work in data analytics, uh, business model innovation, alternative investment strategies, evolutionary decision theory, behavioral law and economics, and behavioral corporate finance. He, uh, he's also recently co-developed the first class offered at UC Berkeley on blockchain called Blockchain and the Future of Technology, Business, and Law. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So uh, you've got a really broad set of interests and expertise. Um, so I have you know so many things that I'd love to speak to you about, but let's start with money. Uh, okay. As a storage of value and understanding that you're, you have an interest in uh, this, uh, from a historical perspective, is a storage of value and a way of transferring that value. Um, what do you see as the major innovations and changes in those systems uh, in, in say, the last 100, 200 years that you think are the sort of the key moments, maybe two or three things that really changed uh, during that period of time? Well, that, that's a great question. I mean, you know, there's not a lot that's actually new under the sun. I mean, everything that we're seeing is kind of a, um, uh, a newer version of things that we've seen in the past. You know, whether we're talking about um, a movement back to things like cryptocurrencies, which in, in many ways, it's like going back to, to commodity money in some ways. Um, you know, I, we could talk about um, the uh, importance of central banks, but, you know, we've actually had central banks and things like them for uh, quite a long time. Um, 
you know, we could talk about uh, derivatives and all sorts of uh, complex uh, financial contracts, but, you know, we've kind of had them since uh, Mesopotamia. So, um, so on the one hand, we've got some of the most exciting things happening in the world and the pace seems to be uh, ever accelerating. But when you step back and you look at the, the things that are happening, they're all rooted in um, kind of institutional solutions that, that uh, have been around for a long time. Right. Um, so if you look at that system, which is, I mean, if it's been around for a long time, um, and you look at it, what are the inefficiencies in the system that can potentially be addressed with fintech in general? Yeah, I mean, finance is really all about information, right? The theoretical issues that finance professors spend all their time on are, are things like, um, you know, asymmetric information, um, uh, adverse selection, uh, moral hazard, what are called what's called delegated monitoring. It, it's all about um, the informational interface between, say, borrower and lender, between uh, payer and recipient. Um, and so if, if finance is all about the generation of information and the utilization of that information for transactions, um, the rapid acceleration of information production, uh, which is probably the single most um, important um, transformation that's happening in our time, is obviously going to hit hit finance more almost more than any other uh, area of economic activity. So, so it's really about, it's really just about you know better information all around. G- give me an example of that. Maybe not not. We'll get into cryptocurrency in, in a second. <coughs> but what are some examples of that that you're that you're talking about? Yeah. So I mean, even if we go back, say, twenty five years ago to uh, Capital One, right when Capital One got started, um, the number of people who could get access to credit cards was was quite limited. You know, if you go back as far as the 80s, um, because anybody below a certain uh, credit score was simply unable to get a credit card. They, they were viewed as being bad credit risks. And then along comes a company like Capital One. And, you know, there are others that are doing this. And they said, look, this fine grained single cutoff of uh, FICO score is, is way too blunt of an instrument. If we could get better data and learn things about the customer beyond uh, just the FICO score, um, then we could probably find a bunch of people who are good credit risks, who are uh, buried in, in the um, denied credit bucket, and then some other people who are probably, you know, uh, bad credits who are in the given credit bucket. And so, you know, it's all about going from these very crude um, classifications into much more nuanced and subtle ones. And for that, it's all about finding new sources of information and processing it more, more quickly and more effectively. But we still use a FICO score, don't we? I mean, they, they just changed it <laughs> up. But we're talking about 25 years ago. I mean, have they really yeah. done anything different? Or, Well, you know, companies like FICO have, have obviously tried to, you know, improve their game and, and come up with better uh, metrics, incorporating, you know, more information and using better algorithms. But at the end of the day, um, you know, they're limited in terms of the stuff that they access. They're looking backwards at, you know, previous behavior. They're not looking at real time. You know, what we want is we want real-time decision-making. I mean, I want, I want to see your interest rate go up the minute you get off the plane in Las Vegas. You know what I mean? I want to see, <clears throat> I I want to see the, um, uh, your credit line go up the second the, the inventory shows up on, on the loading dock, right? Yeah. Um, this is what is now being enabled with, with what we call fintech is, you know, real-time, real-time decisioning, you know, that's, that's, that's granulated down to the, to the very specific person, the very specific action and the specific moment in time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just to, just as a follow up on that, I remember finishing uh, residency and going from, you know, I, I was up there at UC San Francisco and, and uh, my surgical training, I think I made 
like forty five, fifty thousand dollars in my my chief residence a year uh, in San Francisco. You're obviously in the Bay Area. You know how far that probably went. Uh, and then the next year was making mid six figures, but my credit report was exactly the same. Yes. My FICO score was exactly the same, and it took a while for that to register. So yeah, I mean, if you if you, get, if you graduate Harvard Medical School with a bunch of student loan debt. You know, to to the credit provider, you just look like uh, you know a horrible risk. I mean, does they don't look at your LinkedIn profile? Well, now a lot of lenders are looking at stuff like that. They're they're, they're scraping data from your phone to see you know what do you do all day? You know, where are you going? I mean, even uh, there's a lender in, in Africa called uh, Tala where they um, they look at how you uh, how frequently you recharge your battery on your phone. You know, people who let the battery go all the way to zero or bad credit risks. And, and so, no, I'm seriously, <laughs> people who, <laughs> who <laughs> top it off uh, periodically, you know, they see it go down 20% and they, they plug it in. Those people are actually really good credit risks. I mean, yeah. your Facebook profile probably says way more about your credit worthiness than your FICO score. That's interesting. So let's let's talk a little bit about the you know the latest and the greatest when it comes to FinTech specifically in my, uh, what I'm referring to is, is distributed ledger technology. And let's start with Bitcoin. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin and its uh, future, either as a storage yes. of value or money or, or whatever? Well, I mean, look, Bitcoin has a certain amount of um, uh, kind of classic uh, reputation going for it, right? You know, yeah. kind, of, kind of like gold. I mean, you know, there've been a lot of um, uh, precious metals and other sorts of, um, material sources of, of value store that have come about since gold, but, but, you know, gold has that iconic um, status. And I think, you know, Bitcoin will, will always have this uh, iconic status. It's got terrible um, characteristics. I mean, it's never going to be a, uh, a good um, uh, medium of exchange. Um, and it's never going to be the way in which we all transact our, our business. And it's certainly not going to be a unit of account. <clears throat> And, you know, there are obviously solutions out there to try and make it uh, more scalable and, and, you know, lower some of the costs of transacting. There are ways of using it to store um, entire lists of transactions rather than single transactions. You know, there's off-chain um, activity, which is then, I mean, I think you could imagine how Bitcoin could be like a central bank where you just have uh, all of the, the net settlement across um, exchanges uh, taking place. So there would be very few transactions actually on on chain, um, so that, that's one possibility uh, where, where Bitcoin continue to to stay uh, to stay relevant. But you know, we're starting to see a whole bunch of other um, uh, uses of, of blockchain that I think will be far more important than, right. than Bitcoin. Just like you know, in the grand scheme of things, in the traditional financial system, gold plays a very very uh, trivial role. Yeah, let's let, let's talk a little bit about the the, the gold parallel though, because I think it's a good one. Because mm -hmm. I think the a lot of the you know purists around Bitcoin and and I, I mean I I think I would kind of put myself in that role too kind of see uh, Bitcoin wow. as a type of storage of value that will ultimately become a you know a digital gold and and what do you do you think now obviously you know I I hear what you're saying when it comes to day to day transactions and that sort of things and. You know, there are people who think that Lightning Network and, and some of the other solutions around that will solve that. But even as a storage of value, what do you think would be some of the things that would prevent that from happening? Well, obviously, if there's if there's a uh, 
um, you know, 51% attack, right? I mean, sure. one, of, one of the things that keeps the, the, the network um, functioning is the, uh, the idea that it truly is decentralized and that you have the checks and balances, you know, built in. Um, what I find so exciting about the new developments in, in uh, cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain uh, protocols is the kind of people are starting to pay much more attention to, to consensus mechanisms, you know, and, and this is, I mean, people have been studying this since the ancient Greeks and people, you know, Condorcet in the 18th century and all the game theorists in the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, we've, we've kind of brought our attention back to what are the conditions for what you might think of as, as constitutional stability. And, and in order to, for that to work, you have to have these checks and balances. And, and there's really nothing in place to prevent, um, you know, a majority of miners from, from simply uh, taking over the, the network and appropriating values themselves, you know, in some form of, uh, of seniorage. Yeah, but presumably there's a, there's a, that would require an enormous amount of money and, and resources to do 51% in, in Bitcoin in particular. Not, not really, because... It, you know, people are already mining. Are you talking um, about syndicates and that sort of thing? or Yeah, I mean, people, yeah. look, it, you don't have to increase the amount of mining to get to 51%. You just have to get 51% of the people to uh, enter into a contract, you know. And, you know, you could very easily enter into a smart contract, which says, you know, we're all going to cooperate. And uh, if one of us doesn't cooperate, then they lose the <clears throat> whatever they stake. I mean, it wouldn't be that wouldn't be that hard, actually. It would just require a little bit of um, uh, kind of organizational uh, entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the number of miners that would have to get together for this are probably like two or three in China and, and then boom, you, you've got a problem. Hmm. So now look, I don't think that they would, um, behave like the Venezuelan central bank, you know, and just, yeah. <clears throat> I think that they would probably just have a nice, uh, slow and steady, uh, five or 6% tax on everybody's, uh, Bitcoin every year. And, and that would be the, you know, cause they don't want to kill the golden goose. So they would just give off a, a, a little percentage, a little tax. I mean, sovereigns have been doing this since the beginning of time. You know, all the Kings would in the middle ages would just say, everybody's got to bring back their coins and we're going to reissue new coins and we're going to shave a little bit of the value off. And that's going to be our seniorage. And, there's nothing to prevent seniorage from, from taking place in, in any of the cryptocurrency uh, networks. Yeah, right. Understood. I mean, I think that's a, it's a it's an interesting scenario. Obviously, there are uh, ways, uh, you know, there are various forks and things like that that could potentially happen to avoid that in that event anyway. But let's let's uh, let's move on to some of the other things that you were talking about. So, you know, based on this, I mean, and, and the idea that, you know, Bitcoin and particular, maybe not, um, in your, in your view, something that, um, that's going to sort of take over the financial world, what happens to it in the next three to five years? <clears throat> well, I don't think it's going to go away. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think Bitcoin will, I mean, what's, what's, what I think is very healthy about what's happened in the last uh, year or so is that, you know, all of this attention has been brought to it, um, but I remember in January, I was in an Uber in Los Angeles and then the Uber driver was rattling off all the coins that he was putting all of his life savings into. And I was like, all right, you know, I got to get back to the hotel and, and, and you know, see if I can short some of this stuff. Because this was kind of like a, you know, March of 2000 moment when you have the hairdressers yeah. telling what, what stocks to buy. Um, and, and so I think kind of we that was necessary to kind of kind of get this on the map. But when when, when the Uber drivers stopped 
driving the, the valuations. And it, it you know, kind of goes back to uh, um, kind of, you know, people, sensible people that are trying to actually store value that then I think the, and the price is stabilized. Then I think it's, it's, it's going to remain a, um, uh, it's going to be there. It's, it's not, it's, it's going to be somewhat of a, of a curiosity as a store of value. But, but I think that what people don't understand is that Bitcoin offers so much more um, in the sense that um, if, if I want to encode information in, on this chain, uh, you know, I can do it. I mean, I can, I can take an entire slate of transactions <clears throat> that, I've, uh, that I've generated in, in a completely different world and then I can just stick them onto you know one tiny transaction on on the chain, um, and so that will always be I think I think uh, it'll be valuable because there's 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 a network effect and there's a path dependence that uh, that kind of locks Bitcoin in as the most recognizable and universally accepted um, uh, you know filing cabinet for for all this data. Right. I mean, you're, so you're talking about the sort of the non-monetary use of, 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 of the Bit, Bitcoin blockchain in particular. Um, some yeah, of the and I, and I think that'll, I think that'll keep the, you know, that'll keep the, keep, keep the value. Uh, it'll keep some of the value going. The other thing that's obviously happening in this area that I'm, um, you know, I, I would think you would, you would think potentially could be a stabilizing force, if not a, um, you know, more of a bullish uh, thing about what's going on is the, uh, you know the rise of the institutional interest in the space with with now you've got uh, <coughs> backed uh, being released by the uh, Inter intercontinental exchange uh, yep. so the owner of the New York Stock Exchange is going to have a um, they have 23 regulated exchanges it cre creates yeah. a, a significant uh, you know global um, if nothing else a, a, you know some sense of security for institutional buyers uh, you've got uh, the 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 ETF that's sort of been uh, put forth by the CBOE and the partnership yep. and and that's right so this this is clearly going to be something uh, something different than it is today would you agree with that even in the sense of yeah. the currency no I, I agree and it's it's great that the institutions are, are you know getting on board um, but you know what we're seeing I think is what Friedrich Hayek dreamed of back in the 70s where we have kind of a free market for for money and and you know everybody's competing um but i don't think we should write off the uh the the central banks i mean you know they're 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 competitors and um you know they they one of the reasons why these cryptocurrencies have emerged is because the you know the, the central banks are you know haven't introduced something similar now I don't think, I honestly think that in the next 10 years, we, we will have um, truly uh, digital versions of all of the major currencies, uh, meaning that, um, you know, you'll be able to write smart contracts with, in Fedcoin and Eurocoin and, and Yencoin and, and, you know, RMB coin. And when, when you can do that, I think it's, it's going to, um, you know, it's going to pose a threat. It's, it's, the question is, you know, will the will the Fed be like Barnes and Noble trying to fight off Amazon, uh, or you know, yeah. uh, will it be Amazon trying to fight off Rackspace? I mean, that that's the question. Um, and I, I actually, I mean, I honestly think that um, if if the Fed does this, it, it poses it poses a, a major existential threat to um, 
to 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 a lot of the the, the cryptocurrencies out there. You know, um, Ethereum in particular. Well, and why Ethereum? Well, because Ethereum is is what's what's being used for uh, a lot of the smart contracts. But it, the problem with with Ethereum is, of course, the, the the volatility of its of its valuation. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, and stablecoin and uh, the other kinds of attempts to um, introduce some predictability. You know, their 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 business model disappears the minute the Fed shows up yeah. because all they're doing is acting like a um, almost like a, uh, a currency board. Right. You know, and just like all the other currency boards, uh, like Argentina's famous currency board in, in, the, in the late uh, 90s, um, they, they uh, you know, if, if there's no regulation on them, they, they, there's, there's really no reason for them to, to exist. Right. Although in the case of Ethereum, of course, it's not really a currency per se. I mean, it's a, yeah. you know, it's really, <laughs> it, it, it's a, it's a protocol, right? So it's mostly used to build things on top of. So I sure. don't know that the Fed would necessarily be a direct uh, um, competitor on, in, in that regard. But, um, but <coughs> let, let's, let's talk to a little bit yeah. about some of the other things. Um, so you might be a little you know, obviously you're not, you're a little bit less optimistic about Bitcoin, but I know you are a believer <coughs> in distributed ledger technologies in general. Yeah. Um, I've heard you reference, um, in particular, Nick Zabo's uh, smart contract paper. Yeah. Um, for those of you who, uh, for those of us who may not know about that and uh, what a smart contract is and why it's a value, can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about how the, the finance is really all about information um <clears throat> but it's also all about contracts you know <coughs> finances is <coughs> the economic economics of time <coughs> excuse me yeah no problem if you want to grab a drink we can <coughs> you know it's it's all about it's all about it's all about if thens i mean finance as well as pretty much all business all economic activity to the extent that it takes place over time to the extent that it's not a spot contract you know you're exchanging promises and uh it, you know, enforcing promises is why the legal system exists for the most part. Um, and uh, if, if you can come up with a technological way of enforcing contracts um, that doesn't require the kind of oversight, doesn't require, require the kind of um, uh, enforcement machinery, that doesn't require, uh, you know, the, 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 the monitoring, the, um, you know, the, the weird forms of, of collateral, the, the ability to, 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 to punish, um, if you can replace that with with a with a nice clean series of computational if then propositions, <coughs> um, it really does solve a huge amount of problems in in in, uh, in business. So the I, I think the the best way to describe maybe a smart contract, a simplest example, would be a vending machine, right? I mean, basically you've got a contract, you have a simple program in there, you put a couple coins in there, you come out with the, a soda. And if there's change to be made, the program knows exactly what uh, what you need. So, what else could you replace? I mean, if you think about that, I mean, obviously, there it, it sounds like pretty much anywhere where there's potentially middleman. Yeah, well, I mean, not even a, I mean, the middleman. Oftentimes, the middlemen don't appear until the contract goes south, right? So, you know, you and I can write a contract, and then if something happens, then we have to bring in the lawyer, okay, or the courts. Or uh, the, the repo man, or you know the, the, right. the guy with the with the with the weapon. Um, 
So we can get rid of those middlemen ex post and, and get rid of the, the, the ex ante middlemen who will set up all the, now look, I mean, we still need the programmers and they're gonna perform the role that a lot of the lawyers play uh, today. And we probably still need lawyers to guide these, these programmers. But uh, anytime you have a contract that um, is, can be reduced to a series of simple if-thens. Um, so I think the, the, the case where I think the hugest opportunity is, is in, in the world of um, high finance, in the world of uh, derivatives. Um, the scope of the derivatives market is you know, 10 times that of the global economy in terms of notional principle. You know, we're talking about swaps for the most part, uh, but also, you know, options, uh, futures, <clears throat> all of these contracts, um, you know, they're basically, they basically take the form of um, if the, uh, if the yen goes up, you pay me, if the yen goes down, I pay you, right? If, um, the, the floating rate goes above the fixed rate, I pay you, if it goes below the fixed rate, you pay me. I mean, th these are like, they're, they're, they're called arrow de brew securities or arrow, arrow de brew contracts. This is easiest thing in the world to put into a smart contract, you know, once you have the machinery for it and, and that's going to just sweep away, um, you know, entire universes of, of, of natural language contracts. Um, a couple other areas have to do with um, SPVs, you know, SPVs are classic. They're not quite as big, but anything where you have securitization, anytime you have cash flows that get sent to a special purpose vehicle, and then sent back out to various claimants. Um, all of the, this is the this is this is basically a financial vending machine. You know, if the cash flows uh, come in, they go this way. If they don't come in, then you know this guy doesn't get paid. If there's a lot of them, this guy gets paid and this guy gets paid. And it's all just a bunch of if thens. And we have lawyers that are, you know, doing all this and supervising all this, and and uh, and we could do all this stuff with smart contracts. What do you see the threat, if any, to investment bankers, venture capitalists? <laughs> well, look, investment bankers are like, uh, are like, um, I almost said cockroaches. Let's, let's say they're, they're <laughs> like mammals. Um, <laughs> you know, we reinvented ourselves many times since the ice age. Um, so investment bankers will continue to exist and they'll just keep going out on the next limb. But a lot of what they, they do now, and certainly a lot of the stuff that the transactional lawyers do right now will be automated. I mean, I think, uh, um, JP Morgan just, um, announced that they had taken 300,000 lawyer hours and compressed it to just a few microseconds of computation. You know, we better get used to that because that's what uh, the smart contracts are going to do for uh, a lot of these lawyers. But, but the truth, truth be told, it's, it's the most uh, uninteresting aspect of the job of investment banker or lawyer that will be automated. Um, and, and the more interesting bits will just get more and more interesting. Do you think do you think the New York Stock Exchange will exist as it currently does in twenty <coughs> years? You know, well, in other words, will we will be we be using a system that requires, you know, the central ledger, you know, the central authority to trade equities? Well, I won't come. Uh, let me step back a second. Um, absolutely not. First of all, it will. I I would. Turn the question on its head. I think what we will see is, in some sense, a greater centralization of information. So that word central, we have to be careful about because right now we have lots and lots and lots of little ledgers, right? We have all the brokers have ledgers, the exchange has ledgers, the custodians have ledgers, you know, right. the, um, uh, there, there are so many ledgers out there 
And, you know, reconciling them all is why we have accountants. And all they do is spend all day making sure that, you know, when something goes from here to here, all those ledgers, you know, re reflect it. Now we will have a single ledger. Now, granted, it'll be distributed on all of these different, uh, um, you know, with all these, all these different computers and all these different uh, entities, but it will be a single ledger. And uh, that single source of truth, even though it's distributed, will wind up putting a lot of these en entities out of business. I mean, <clears throat> the exchanges will still exist because we still need places where buyers and sellers can come and, and, uh, and exchange things and where prices can be discovered. But all the back office, all that machinery that happens behind the scenes that require, you know, that takes three days for a, a trade to you know, be cleared and settled, all that stuff will just be shoom, gone. And then the question is, who, who's going to control it? You know, are the people who are currently doing this going to get wise to it and, and uh, be the ones that create it? Or will the people kind of in further downstream be the ones that, that, that get together and, and, and create it? Yeah, but think, whoever does create it is going to put a lot of people out of business. Well, I think there's, you know, at least in even within cryptocurrencies, obviously, we've got this movement of decentralized exchanges. And so I wonder if, you know, yeah. that that kind of peer to peer transaction uh, <clears throat> in in, you know, what we consider sort of the traditional equities world would be the new. It certainly would save a lot of people money, uh, except for the banks. But but, uh, you know, even. Well, wait, hold on, but hold on. But hold on a second. Right. So. You know, almost all of us who have cryptocurrencies, you know, we fork over our private key to an exchange. And, and then what that means is that the, the exchange is, is actually uh, the ones that are, that are, you know, that are, in, that are the custodians of the, uh, of the cryptocurrency. Um, and so we, you know, we, we use that word decentralization. But in fact, as soon as people get the, the, the decentralized asset they, they 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 can't they can't wait to to put it back on on someone else's balance sheet they can't wait to to centralize it back um because the 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 convenience of um uh, using an exchange well that, that's certainly a case now right. um yeah i think of the big big ones you're talking about like you know binance or bitrix coinbase. or whatever or coinbase yeah. um they're all centralized but i mean we've got an entire movement of decentralized uh, exchanges coming out where basically your money yeah. is sitting right on the blockchain and you're just talking about peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So the the technology is certainly there and I just wonder if that's going to be something that we're going to see in the uh, yeah. in, in the mainstream. I mean that's, that's that's a great question but um I'm kind of a I'm kind of a realist and about people and yeah. you know people are like man privacy privacy I need my privacy I need my privacy and then someone says hey Give me all your personal data for a free slice of pizza. And people are like, right. sure, here it is. You know, like, yeah. and then they can, they talk about private. Like, no, if people really, really cared about privacy, they wouldn't use Amazon. They wouldn't use Google. They wouldn't use Facebook. Of course they don't. And, and so, <clears throat> so they use these things. And, and I think that a lot of people are like, yeah, I want to, I want to be in control and I, I want to, you know, use these centralized systems. But the minute you add in even, the tiniest bit of convenience, people rush to, to take advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, I think that's the that's the thing right now that is is the limiting uh, aspect of decentralized exchanges. I mean, if you're going to end up, you know, using MetaMask or some of these other things that are really, frankly, quite hard to use, 
Um, but we've got, um, you know, we've got some really interesting things coming along the way that could even simplify that. And you may not even be able to tell the difference now, even though you're on a decentralized uh, exchange. Um, from a historical perspective, again, going back to sort of your, you know, the broader perspective that you have, when you look at distributed ledger technology, whether that's, you know, blockchain or gossip protocols, whatever it ends up being in terms of financial um, and the business world, is how big is this technology? Is it PayPal or is it the rise of the Internet itself? Is it what? How big is this? I think I think it's more it's closer to the latter. I mean, I think we, we really will. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not looking at it through the cryptocurrency lens. I'm looking at it through the database lens. I'm looking at it through uh, kind of the, you know, the way databases have evolved over the, over the last uh, um, couple decades. Um, you know, we, we all went, we, we all have moved from these on-prem databases to, um, to cloud. You know, we've moved from um, kind of relational databases to these, you know, data lakes and, you know, you, you've seen how as how as every business has become a data business and every business has really had kind of some data strategy at, at the core of its its business model. Um, any developments which um, facilitate better access to data, better communication of data, better codification and retrieval of data, you know, better harmonization of data across not only firm boundaries, but across, you know, different divisions within the same firm. Um, you know, this is, this is, it's truly transformational. I, th I think, you know, it's, it's kind of, I would say it's up there with, with, uh, you know, with machine learning as, um, in terms of, of the, the impact that, that it's going to have. I would tend to agree with that. So how can we, how can we learn more about what you're working on there, uh, without going to Berkeley? <laughs> well, um, so I, I'm uh, in the process right now of, of developing a uh, uh, an online course in collaboration with my, some other folks here at the business school and the law school and the engineering school um, that will uh, take some of the you know the stuff that we give to our uh, MBAs to our, our JDs to our um, uh, engineering students and you know just make it available to people uh, on, a, on a broader way um, and hopefully that'll kind of create more buzz, generate more community, particularly among um, enterprise people. Uh, you know, I think that although the, the, the folks leading the charge have been, you know, students and people, uh, you know, on the fringe and entrepreneurs, uh, it, it's just really important for people um, in mainstream enterprise to, to understand that this is something they need to know about. And, you know, when the CEO says to the CFO, hey, I read about blockchain, you know, what's our blockchain strategy? I would hope that the CFO doesn't just you know, make something up or, or, you know, provide some nonsense or cut and paste a, something from IBM, you know, but rather really uh, has, has, has given some thought to it. And, and um, you know, whether it's the CIO or the CFO or the CTO or, um, you know, the CMO, like they all need to have some understanding of how their world is going to, is going to change and, and what the opportunities are uh, so that they don't get left in the dust. 
Yep, absolutely. And it can't be just putting blockchain on the end of your name of your company, right? Yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah. I know. Why didn't I think of that? I should have changed my last name. I would have. <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your stock would have gone up by about 25% <laughs> right. of that. Well, anyway, right. listen, uh, Greg, I really do appreciate being uh, you being on the show and adding your perspective. Well, no, thank you so much for, for, for having me. And then, you know, one day we, maybe we can talk about um, asset management because uh, that's, that's another area that's, that's really dear to me. And, uh, you know, I think that world is being radically transformed as well. Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks for being on. We'll be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Okay, welcome back to the show, everybody. Now, um, it's Q&A time. I'm, I'm sure you enjoyed that, uh, that talk with... Uh, uh, Professor LeBlanc, and um, you know he's uh, very generous with his time. There are some things uh, I want to talk about, which he mentioned, which you might have been wondering about, which you know gives me an opportunity to answer some questions about things that maybe we have not discussed on the show so much yet. So let me ask the first question instead of having you do it. You heard you heard uh, uh, Professor LeBlanc talking about a fifty-one percent attack, and um, I think specifically he said that he didn't feel that it would be that difficult to do. So let's t let's move back. What exactly is a fifty-one percent attack in the first place? So the one of the things is, um, and I'm going to keep this very basic, but the people with the power in uh, Bitcoin or other uh, blockchains are what are known as the miners, right? They're the ones who are doing this. They're doing these complex mathematical problems uh, through their computers, specialized computers, and that is uh, called mining, right? And think of all of that mining power, all of that power that goes into this is something called hash power, right? So if you are able to get 51% of the hashing power, then you effectively can do something nefarious to a blockchain. You can't do that to anything in the past, but what you can do is you can actually double spend money, double spend Bitcoin. You can spend it and then, you know, and then because you control the blockchain, you can basically say, I haven't spent it. But in the meantime, you've already bought something with your Bitcoin. So that is extremely simplistic about, you know, a description about what a 51% attack is. But that's what it is. Effectively, 51% uh, of the hashing power uh, gets together and decides we're going to double spend and make a bunch of money on this. And so when, uh, when, when Greg LeBlanc says that he believes that um, uh, this would not be particularly difficult in the case of Bitcoin, theoretically, 
there may be some truth to that. After all, in Asia alone, right? I mean, uh, I think they have 70-some percent of the hashing power coming out of China. Um, but let's let's talk about why that is not likely, because I disagree with um, Dr. LeBlanc on this point. Um, if, you di- if you got in this situation, first of all, these miners, right, the ones with the hashing power, are spending billions of dollars on these fancy computers to do this mining. It is in their best interest for the Bitcoin ecosystem to stay intact and for them to continue to accumulate Bitcoin. Hopefully that makes sense, right? Because what would happen to Bitcoin if there was a 51% attack and all of a sudden there was a double spending problem? It would destroy Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is there would be a complete lack of faith in the Bitcoin network. And do you really believe that people who've spent literally billions of dollars on Bitcoin uh, mining equipment are going to suddenly want to see Bitcoin go to zero? The answer is no. This is akin to what is called mutually assured destruction, right? That was the whole idea back when the, there was the United States and there was the Soviet Union. And, and if one of them pushed the button uh, and started a nuclear war, it would basically create annihilation of both sides. That's why it can't happen, okay? The Bitcoin miners have billions and billions of dollars in these machines. They have zero interest in seeing Bitcoin go away and how having all of those computers that can do nothing other than mine Bitcoin become completely worthless. So I would respectfully disagree with um, Dr. LeBlanc on that. The other thing is um, <clears throat> along that line is, is that there is no ability for uh, miners to suddenly start taxing um, taxing anybody. I mean, that's just another sort of you know software issue. I don't. There's not like a government, right? Ha- uh, the miners are not government. All they do is create Bitcoin and they basically create algorithms. Um, another issue I needed to just address again, and this is, uh, this is just, you know, giving you my perspective because I think it's important and we're all learning here and I certainly don't pretend to be the expert in, um, in any of this, but I want to make sure that I, I give you my perspective as well. Um, there are, uh, you know, um, uh, Dr. LeBlanc also talked about some of these um, exchanges and how there's, you know, basically you're taking centralization away. You're going to decentralize uh, Bitcoin, but then it gets centralized when it's back in, you know, like a Coinbase or a Gemini or Kraken or something like that. And and while that is true, there is a couple of things to remember. Most people who own a lot of um, or a substantial amount of cryptocurrency, or people who don't even, but just kind of get it, they don't they don't store their cryptocurrencies on exchanges. They store them in wallets, right? And the wallets are, in fact, not centralized at all. Certainly, you could keep your money in Coinbase. 
right? You could keep you could keep your Bitcoin, your Ethereum, and Coinbase. Um, and in that situation, your money, your 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 currency is still on the uh, blockchain, but it's mixed in with everybody else's, and it's basically prone to attack because anybody who can get into the exchange's funds is able to basically rip off all of your tokens. Now, if you have a private wallet that you're, like, for example, say you're using my Ether wallet or something like that, that's sitting on the Ethereum network, right? You need a private key to get in there. It's not centralized. So that is not true. Um, when you are storing your own coins in a, in, in a wallet on the blockchain, it is not stored in a centralized area. So those are a couple of things I think that are important. By the way, I recommend uh, Ledger Nano S, um, which is what I use. And um, I think Phil has, uh, has a tutorial on how that works and maybe a link um, on that on consensusnetwork.io. Okay, so now I'm going to go to a couple of your questions. The first one is from Amit. Uh, Amit says, uh, Hello, Buck. Uh, enjoying this new podcast. A crypto space is very fascinating. A few comments and thoughts. One, you mentioned you are bullish on crypto as an investment. Are you talking specifically about Bitcoin or other types of cryptos? Um, so, so... Yeah, so I I am bullish on all of distributed ledger technology. But let me take that question. It's a good question, right? Because I actually, the way I think about investing in this space is I actually think about it as two things. I think about it as Bitcoin, and then I think about it as everything else. Because Bitcoin is the one thing uh, that has already been accepted um, by mainstream investors vis-a-vis -vis Wall Street as a storage of value, as a type of digital gold. So I think the risk profile on Bitcoin is different from the rest of the tokens and coins out there um, because of this adoption into mainstream elements. So um, I'm bullish on all of it, but I think if you're wanting to get in and you want some upside, uh, and but you don't you know you're not you want to be a little bit maybe minimal in terms of your risk taking probably just stick to bitcoin because we know bitcoin is what wall street's going to buy um now i know people out there are thinking well well buck what about a you know you've got ethereum right you've got you know all these other things out there that are you know in the top five or ten but i think with those i think the challenge is and I, i'm not against those i own a lot of different, you know, cryptos. I think something like I don't know, like forty different cryptos, but some they're all the rest of them are on all on the scale of uh, a little bit more speculative in my in my opinion, because even Ethereum, right? Ethereum is a tricky one. I know everybody is so like you know Ethereum's like uh, you know is is solid as Bitcoin. But the challenge with Ethereum, in my view, is you've got these competitors, right? You've got these next, um, you know, what is Ethereum? Ethereum is basically, it's a, it's, it's a protocol, and it's, a, it's something that people are going to build applications on top of, okay? And it is, it's a first of its kind. That's why it's a big deal. 
But unless they can significantly improve that technology and make it more scalable, you've got a whole lot of other options coming up through the pipeline, namely EOS, right? EOS, EOS. Another one of my favorites is Hedera Hashgraph, which has not released their, um, uh, their token yet. And it's actually not a blockchain protocol. It's a distributed ledger called a gossip protocol. And you're going to hear more about that in the future. But you've got all these other different protocols on which people can build things and, and, and have smart contracts and all that. And they're a lot more scalable. I'm not saying that Ethereum is dead by any means, but on the other hand, it makes me less sure, I guess. I mean, you can never say anything sure, right? But Bitcoin to me, uh, I was definitely not necessarily a Bitcoin guy when I first got into this, but now I'm looking around and I'm saying, we've got mainstream adoption of Bitcoin. This is different from all of the rest of blockchain and crypto right now. So that's that's how I see it. But overall, your question being, am I uh, bullish on, um, what am I bullish on? I'm bullish on all of it. You know, all of the good projects and Bitcoin, but they're different. They have different risk profiles. Okay, second part of that question, there's a three-part question from him, is uh, you mentioned that you'd like for Bitcoin to drop to around 6,000 before you invest again. What's the rationale for this if you, th if you think it's going to jump up in value in the future? Well, my rationale is, is this, okay? So I already own, I already own Bitcoin. I, I own a fair amount of Bitcoin. And so really what I'm looking for is I'm looking to add to it at values that I think it's on sale. I think right now, as of today, it's about 6,500 bucks. And if I owned no Bitcoin whatsoever and I knew or I felt, you know, the way I do, I would go in there and buy right away. But right now I'm opportunistic. If I don't buy any more Bitcoin and it shoots up to 20,000, I'm happy. But if it drops down to 6,000, I feel like it's on sale. Now, why? You might wonder why I think that. Well, a lot of it has to do with, I'm not a trader, right? But I follow some of these charts and things that other people uh, write about. And if you look at what these supports are, there's a really, really robust support um, when Bitcoin drops to about 6,000 or so. It can drop a little bit below there. It can go to 59, 58. But man, there are so many buyers at that point that it won't stay there for long. So I am basing that a little bit on some trading principles, um, moving averages, etc. I don't, you know, um, I, I, I will point out that I did buy some more at around 61, about 61.50 last week. And had I seen it drop below six, I would have jumped, but I, well, I was in the middle of something else, like completely unrelated for that day. So I missed out, but I did buy around 61.50. And um, I think it's still a great value. The third question from Amit is, um, I get you're not a financial advisor. Thank God for that, I'll tell you. And we should do our own due diligence. But for someone looking um, for set it and forget it is type speculative investment. What are your thoughts on dropping $1,000 on Bitcoin and hoping for the best? Would you suggest spreading out amongst the other currencies? Um I will say this, man. I, I think, again, if you're just talking, it depends how much money you have, right? Um, uh, Bitcoin is uh, in all, all of these, all of these coins and tokens are definitely speculative. But I personally 
Again, I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not. I'm a guy with opinions, and I, you know, but in my opinion, as an investor, knowing what I know, what's going on, I think Bitcoin is, 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 is not even risky as everybody has to say it is. Right? Every time somebody talks about Bitcoin, everybody has to say, "Oh, but it's risky," and be prepared to lose everything. Well, hello, that's that's called investing, right? But right now, Bitcoin, um, in my view, is not terribly terribly um, uh, uh, speculative. So dropping on Bitcoin is probably not a bad move to do. But on the other hand, what I would say is in terms of you saying, you know, if you want to spread it out amongst other currencies, I, I would tell you that unless you're in this space, unless you're really looking at projects, etc., don't even bother because you're going to end up probably losing money. And, um, you know, I mean, again, I am pretty, pretty, you know, in this space. I mean, listen, I'm doing a podcast on this stuff, two podcasts a week. That's more than I do for Wealth Formula now. Um, so uh, I, I, I feel comfortable taking some risks because I, I know what I'm doing. But I think for most people, um, if you want some exposure, you know, there are there are some funds out there for accredited investors. It looks like you said you're not accredited. We'll have some of those people potentially on this show um, later on and talk about those things. But but yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to, you know, if you just want to do a set it and forget it, Bitcoin would not be a bad idea. All right, next question. Um, and then maybe we'll wrap it up because I've been talking for a while here. Sean, um, Sean writes, uh, hey, by the way, everybody, tell me where you're from, okay? Because that'll be, that'll be fun to know because some people are from different, everybody's from different states, but sometimes you get different countries, et cetera. So make sure you let me know. And again, there's, you can do these uh, via the uh, voicemail or, you know, speak pipe or whatever you want to call it, consensusnetwork.io. Um, so we can hear your lovely voice on the air. So anyway, Sean writes, uh, hey, Buck, I've been enjoying the new podcast. I've been looking into this space for a while. My question is, how do I, as an accredited investor, purchase a private token like Hedera? I'm with you on Hashgraph and the speed it is capable of and would love to get in on the ground floor of this thing. Well, so you're an accredited investor, which is good news. The bad news is in terms of Hashgraph, you've missed it. You've missed it. Um, so there used to be... Um, and until, well, there still is. There's something called an, an initial coin offering and um, or a, a token generation event. You might hear that term as well. Um, but but what these are is, is they're basically, you know, IPOs for cryptocurrencies, right? And the difference is that it's just like it becomes like a technology game. Like you just, whoever can get their money in first. Um, and there's a bidding war, gas war, as we call it, for Ethereum. And, you know, people are just trying to buy tokens and it cranks up the prices right away. It's 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 called that was called an ICO. You know, and they still exist. The problem is that the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States does not like them because they are uh, they consider them uh, they consider that akin to an initial public offering as you do in the stock market, which requires you to be an accredited investor. An accredited investor is somebody who makes at least $200,000 per year 
$300,000 if filing jointly or has a net worth of $1 million outside their personal residence. So if the SEC is saying that ICOs are not, um, are they're, they're basically, you know, they, they're IPOs, then they are illegal if they are not limiting to accredited and accredited investors. So there's a lot of scrutiny on that front. And so effectively this year, um, they've pretty much ended doing any initial coin offerings, ICOs in the United States. So you don't really get to see that. Now, um, if you are accredited, and again, accredited is, you know, you either are or you aren't. It's like being pregnant. It's not something you apply for. If you're accredited, you just have to be tapped in and know when um, there are pre-sales going on. So you mentioned Hashgraph, Hedera Hashgraph, which um, which I'm excited about, which I did participate in in the pre-sale. Um, and, and the way it worked basically was there was an institutional round and then they came to retail accredited investors and they, they, they basically, you had to prove, um, you had to be on their site. You get a, you know, you, you end up getting some kind of a, an email from Hedera saying, uh, okay, well, if you're interested, you have to prove to us that you are an accredited investor. So you have to go there, you have to fill out some paperwork, get information from your accountant saying that you're accredited third-party verification, and then um, then there's all sorts of know-your-customer things like, you know, sending a, a picture of you with your passport, things like that, to make sure you're not a money launderer. Once all of that's said and done, then you get put on a list, and uh, this is basically a what's called a SAFT um, or a pre-sale. Um, it's, uh, it's basically a sale of a, a future... Uh, token uh, saft and um and then so you just basically pay for it it's a pre-sale it's no longer an ico and then when the tokens are actually generated um the company gives you sends you the tokens to your wallet now that's how it currently works if you're interested in a potential project that um that's coming up that's not in existence right now and you live in the united states Unfortunately, ICOs are just not really something you can do. And arguably, most any any company right now who is doing an ICO may not be rep, uh, reputable because I think a lot of them are interested in trying to stay above board. So they're sticking to pre-sales. So I'm sorry to say, but it's that whole reason the rich get richer because people who are not accredited do not get to participate in these things in the, uh, in the United States. So... Um, if you are accredited, how do you find out about this stuff? Well, you basically got to be following a lot of people. You got to know a lot of people and you got to find out about new projects. And then you start hearing from insiders that everybody's getting excited about this. And you say, Hey, I want to learn about the project. And then you go to their website and a lot of times they'll have something that you can sign up to get notified when the pre-sale is going to happen. That's basically how it worked. That's how it worked for, uh, what was it? The uh, There was one that was issued from overstock.com. I forget the name. But anyway, uh, they had one of those as well. These SAFs are becoming much more um, 
uh, commonplace. Hopefully that answers your questions, and I'm sorry you missed out on Hedera, but um, you know, as soon as I think their tokens are coming out in Q4, so it's still uh, you know something that you're almost certainly going to be able to buy on Binance probably uh, very quickly. Um, they didn't say that. I have no information on that. It's just every major token that comes out like um, seems to immediately go to Binance. So if you haven't got a Bitrix or Binance account, get those two. Uh, I would, at the very least, I think those are very smart to get because those are the ones that are probably the most legit. By the way, one other thing I want to mention um, is um, we, we going back to the conversation with uh, Greg LeBlanc was we talked about the centralization of those exchanges, but um, that's actually not even necessarily uh, something that has to be the case either. And so, so if you look right now, if you look up ZRX, um, I think it's getting listed on Coinbase. What you get, a, what you'll see is there is, you know, that's one project. There are multiple other projects that are. Uh, coming through, there are some uh, distributed exchanges already. They're not easy to use, but that's going to become much more common as well. You know, you're not going to necessarily just have like the Bitrix and Binance and Coinbase that are owned by one company. You're going to have distributed companies that basically become peer-to-peer -peer trading sites and um, so that's another thing. This whole, this whole world, it can be distributed and that's the, that's the message you need to take home. Anyway, that is it for me this week on uh, consensus network. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.